Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Today on JOSPT Insights, we have our monthly Journal Club edition, where we focus on research articles as the springboard for interviews with authors, educators, as well as clinical experts. My name is Dan Chapman, and I'm a physical therapist in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm Chelsea Kuman, a physical therapist and athletic trainer at True Sports Physical Therapy in Baltimore, Maryland as well. In this episode, we're looking at lateral hip pain and the LEAP trial paper published in 2016 in the BMJ. We have the privilege of sitting down with Dr. Allison Grimaldi, who is a key investigator for the study, to talk about how to improve diagnosis, treatment, as well as troubleshooting care when treating patients with lateral hip pain. So a little background on Dr. Grimaldi. She completed her bachelor's of physiotherapy at the University of Queensland in 1990, her master's of sports physiotherapy in 97, and her PhD in philosophy in the field of physiotherapy in 2008. Her PhD studies were concerned with improving our understanding of hip joint pathology and weight-bearing stimulus, and with over 25 years of clinical experience, Allison has particular expertise in the management of hip, groin, and lumbopelvic pain and dysfunction. She's a principal physiotherapist at Physiotech, as well as adjunct senior research fellow at the University of Queensland in Australia. Allison has her own online learning platform at drallisongrimaldi.com and is also one of the founders of hippainhelp.com, both of which we'll touch on more at the end of this episode, as well as in the show notes. Alison, thank you so much for joining us. We're very excited to have you on today. Sure. Yeah, it's great to be here with you today. Thanks for the invitation. Let's get started with the backdrop for this episode. For our listeners that are unfamiliar with the LEAP trial, can you give us a brief overview of the study? So the LEAP trial is a multi-center randomized clinical trial that was done in Australia. So at the University of Queensland, University of Melbourne. We took people with lateral hip pain, so pain over their greater trachea. We phone screened them, then we brought them into the university and screened them physically. And then people who passed that hurdle uh, were taken through to have MRI and X-ray to confirm their diagnosis and to rule out other things. And then we took them through and divided them into three groups. There was a group that had education and exercise. There was a group that had a, a single cortisone injection and and then there was a group that uh, had wait and see, which is just some basic, very basic information. Can you talk a bit about what the plan of care looked like for the first group? So the education and exercise group, we had an eight-week program, so 14 sessions over eight weeks. Uh, so for the first two weeks, it was just one session a week. And the purpose of those couple of sessions were to do some uh, education. Then we would have a look at their sort of typical ways that they would stand and sit and move and give them some gait re-education, some posture training, trying to reduce or minimise the amount of time they spent in positions of hip adduction. Mm-hmm. And then we would start them on their exercise program. So the first two weeks we started them on their home exercise program, uh, made sure they had good exercise technique. And then the six weeks after that, so the last six weeks were coming into the clinic twice a week, but they had two heavy loading sessions uh, with the physio. And then there was another day of the week that they were also encouraged to work at a harder level. So we were aiming for three times a week of heavy loading. Mm -hmm. And then they still continued their lighter exercises on the other day on the other days, which were isometric exercises, also exercises that were aimed at improving femoropelvic control in that frontal plane. That is a comprehensive plan of care. What was what were the findings of the LEAP study? 
The outcomes were very positive. So we were very pleased to show some superior outcomes from our exercise and education intervention, both in the short term and in the long term. So our two key time points uh, were eight weeks and 52 weeks. At both of those points, the education and exercise in terms of global rating of change were superior to both the wait and see group and the uh, cortisone group. By eight weeks, 30% of people who just had that very basic advice, just a little pamphlet, 30% of those rated themselves as having a successful outcome on the global rating of change. Of the education and exercise group, though, we got almost 80% of people that had a successful outcome. The cortisone group had a almost a 60% outcome. So there's about a 20% better uh, success rate in the education out, uh, exercise group compared to the cortisone group. And then our other primary outcome was pain intensity. So just pain over the last week out of 10. At baseline, the groups were all similar and mean pain was about five out of 10 to start with. At the eight-week point, the education and exercise group had already dropped down to 1.5. The uh, cortisone group had also uh, dropped down, but there was a significant difference still between physiotherapy group, uh, sorry, the education exercise group and the cortisone group. I want to ask one more question about specifically the LEAP trial, but then I want to circle back to some of the things that you mentioned, like a, a regarding stretching and education. Can you just go into how taking into consideration the patient demographics in that study would help clinicians apply the findings to the clinic? And that's a really important point because with any trial that's done, you really need to look at the demographics of that group. So what did that group look like and does that apply to the person in front of me or the people that I see in my daily practice? For us, the group was fairly typical of the sort of people that uh, we see here in Australia in clinical practice. There was a strong dominance of females. So there's 82% of females in the trial. The condition is more common in females than males and particularly that postmenopausal group. So uh, the median pain duration was two years. And then the other thing is the BMI, I suppose. So BMI was mean of uh, almost 28. So again, a, a little bit on that overweight side. And so that's a fairly typical presentation actually that we see so, Dr. Grimaldi, I've seen lateral hip pain referred to as greater trochanteric pain syndrome, gluteal tendinopathy, as well as trochanteric bursitis. Is there really any differentiation between these two, or does it really matter what we should be calling this presentation? That's why I prefer the term gluteal tendinopathy. Clinically useful term that probably engenders a more active intervention style mm -hmm. if we're talking about a tendon style of uh, load management and exercise therapy. With trochanteric bursitis, when it was always diagnosed as trochanteric bursitis, it seemed to induce much more passive treatment mechanisms, so anti-inflammatory treatments that might be icing or you know, electrotherapy, cortisone injection into the bursa, and finally surgical removal of the bursa. So there was a, a real uh, focus on what can we do to reduce the inflammation in this bursa. And we now know we've got a, a large sort of amount of research now to show us that the gluteal tendon pathology is the primary pathology. So I think if we give them a, a clear diagnosis, so 
this is a diagnosis. We have a gluteal tendinopathy, which really just means painful gluteal tendon. And, and then we're going to do these things to help uh, the health, uh, hopefully, of those tissues, but specifically with reducing pain um, by managing the load and doing some exercise for those tissues. Moving away from the LEAP study and more into clinical practice, when you have a patient presenting with lateral hip pain, what's at the top of your differential diagnosis list and what subjective reports and tests and measures do you find to be most clinically useful? So the main differential diagnoses will be lumbar-referred pain and hip joint pain, so some sort of intra-articular uh, pathology are the main differential diagnoses. Now, lumbar-referred pain is often something that these patients get misdiagnosed with early and so there can be a delay in the di diagnosis of the condition because they often do have that pain that's sort of uh, you know lateral hip buttock running down the side of the leg so it almost looks like a pseudo radicular pattern and in clinical practice we often do have patients who have coexisting lumbar issues and that's where it can all get a little bit murky and so it is important to be aware of that uh, for a start. So someone with gluteal tendinopathy will report Report pain over the grade trochanter. So they'll really put their hand over the grade trochanter and then, you know, down the thigh as well quite often. So area of pain is really important. People with gluteal tendinopathy um, will have pain lying on their side at night. So, but it will be pain over the trochanter. So people with uh, hip joint pain can often have pain lying on their side as well, but it'll be more a, a global hip ache or it might be in their groin or it might be a deep sort of ache somewhere in the middle of their hip um, as opposed to, oh, yeah, it's really tender when I lie on this bone at the side of my hip. So there's just slight sort of, you know, nuances, I suppose, differences in that night pain. Uh, people with gluteal tendinopathy will have pain with single leg loading tasks, so standing on one leg to dress, walking mm -hmm. upstairs, uh, you know, walking hills, things like that. You might get some of those things also with hip joint pathology will have that problem manipulating their shoes and socks. So getting their shoes and socks on, getting to their foot will be, you know, an issue more commonly with the more advanced intra-articular conditions, but that's not re really a feature of gluteal tendinopathy. So they won't have that stiffness in their hip if it's only a soft tissue issue. Obviously with lumbar-related um, problem, there might be pain, you know, leaning over, lifting bent those sorts of things. And then going into the physical assessment, we did do a diagnostic utility study as well and look at the different tests that we used as our battery for inclusion into the trial. Palpation was the only sensitive test. So sensitive tests are the tests that are best for ruling out a condition. So it had the best negative likelihood ratio. So that means if someone is not tender on palpation of their grade trochanter, it's highly unlikely to be their issue. The tests that we found were best for ruling in, so had the best positive likelihood ratio, were the most specific. They were tests that exposed the tendon to compression and active tensile load at the same time. So tests like uh, the FADER, this test is hip flexion at 90 degrees, so the patient's supine, flexion to 90 degrees, full adduction and full external rotation. Then you ask the patient to resist a force that pushes them into further external rotation. So you've got one hand on your knee, on their knee, one hand on their ankle. That is testing hip internal rotators. Now, just to remind people that at 90 degrees of hip flexion, 
all of the glutamine and all of the glutamine switches function to become internal rotators. And so though that combination of active tensile load and compression seems to be really provocative. So that's one of my favorite tests in my own clinical practice. Actually, the sustained single leg stance test was the most specific test that we mm. had. And so again, the way you do this is important. Using single leg stance as a reproduction of pain does help you with your diagnosis. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't look at their pelvic control when standing on one leg. You can still do that. Um, but lots of people have poor pelvic control. So in terms of diagnostic tests, you get the patient to stand on one leg. They've just got a fingertip for balance. So just a fingertip of their hand opposite the leg that they're standing on. So they're standing side onto a wall. We want to just pick up the non-weight bearing side foot behind rather than pulling your knee up in front. And then we stand on that leg for up to 30 seconds because some people won't get pain immediately standing on one leg. If at 30 seconds they've had no reproduction of the pain, the test is negative. But if they have pain at some time, in that 30 seconds and it's positive. Okay, so you, you finish your clinical exam and then we always like to give our patients at least something on day one, but can you talk a little bit about what that early phase treatment looks like? What are you focusing on early in the first couple of weeks of getting this patient going? In my own clinical practice on day one, my priorities would be the education. So I can't emphasize the importance of that enough, giving them the education about sitting positions. So the reduce the amount of time crossing your knees, hanging on your hip when you're standing. Sleeping positions is really important. So not sleeping with your knee hanging down into, into adduction. All those load management things are really important. Going over gait, so not just telling them things about gait, but looking at their gait, trying different cues in their gait. Those things are really important in day one. In terms of exercises on day one, they'd always go home with some isometrics. Um, we use that just as a low load isometric, one for pain relief. But two, the original reason that I started doing my isometrics with patients was to help them just train their muscle recruitment a little bit because this patient population seems to be very dominant with their TFL, training them to try to sort of use that deep system better. So you're just sort of palpating the TFL and palpating those uh, deep abductors, you know, laterally. So we do it nice and slow. So we give those deeper abductors a chance to kick in and we try to keep the TFL out of that contraction. So it's not a high load isometric, it's a low load isometric. Other exercises that always go home with some sort of squat and some sort of bridge usually. And then depending on what their ability is like to control their pelvis and their femur in in space, let's um, head them towards something uh, with a single leg bias. So that might be an offset squat, or you might give them supported single leg standing. Going to single leg tasks or single leg bias tasks, initially we would always let them hold on with their hand opposite their main weight bearing leg so that they can really focus on controlling their pelvis and femur in space. Those first couple of weeks are really about getting the education and the load management sorted and getting some good um, movement technique sorted and then testing some loading. And if they're going well, then we sort of head into a more graduated heavy loading program after that. How did you decide on um, the heavy loading? How did you determine how heavy to go? I think that's a tough thing for some clinicians to figure out in the beginning. So the first week of that heavy loading period that we did of the six-week block, we started everyone at a moderate sort of level, um, so moderate for them. So we used a Borg scale, a modified Borg scale. 
in my own clinical practice now, it's simpler just to use the zero to 10 sort mm-hmm. of scale. You know, moderate would be around the five. Um, so we started them at that uh, because often the response to exercise will be delayed and then uh, if that was all good and they didn't have any flare then we gradually progress so then we use the the rpe or the rate of perceived exertion to push their exercise so on those heavy loading days we really wanted them to be working above the five so we're sort of heading towards like a seven out of ten ish um so at that sort of hard to heading towards that very hard level for those who are tolerating it so the progression then was very very criteria-based, so they had to be doing good technique. Their exercise uh, shouldn't have created pain of more than 5 out of 10 is what what we said in the protocol. The exercises, though, that we had to be really careful with pain aggravation, we didn't tolerate pain during exercise, were things that might challenge their femoropelvic control. So, for example, you know, an offset squat or a single leg squat. So if that was reproducing pain directly over the greater trichana, then we ask them not to tolerate that. So good technique, not aggravating the condition. So not just during the exercise, but afterwards, night pain, I find is a really good barometer uh, for this condition. So I say to patients, you know, use that night pain as an indication of how you're coping with your daytime loads. So if you're having a really bad night, have a look at, you know, one, of course, look at your positioning in that nighttime position, but also think about what you did during the day. So if the load was a bit too much, adjust that if necessary. Okay. So we have kind of touched on here and there about the the tendon loading program specifically for the LEAP trial, but can you just talk about it, um, how a tendon loading program is different than just a typical strengthening program and how you carry that out in in your clinical practice? The graduation of load with a tendon program, depending on the patient, you know, and how painful they are and how irritable that tendon is, it's often a bit slower, the loading progression than, you know, if you didn't have any pain and you were just going for strength. So you often have to take a little bit more time in the graduation of that loading program. Uh, differences are because they have pain, we'll be using a pain monitoring approach. And so we will be listening to pain during their exercise in that 24 hours after the exercise as well. And then looking at pain, you know, from week to week. So if their pain is increasing from week to week, we obviously don't have that loading right. So we need to readjust the loading. I'm very interested to hear about your education piece with these patients. You know, sometimes they come in and they are so afraid not only of movement, but of the pain and what the pain means. And that can be a a major stumbling block. I know for some of my patients, it's certainly been a hurdle. Can you model for us, what does that education piece look like, particularly for these patients that are struggling with the fear of movement or pain? The way we provide our education is very important because we don't want to instill fear avoidance. The way we educate, we find, is very empowering for people. So they don't get more scared about the situation. They actually go, oh, okay, that's why that's hurting. So all I have to do is this and then I'll be okay. The first important thing I think is understanding the condition. So we talk to them about, you know, the tendon and we show them the model and, you know, what sort of positions might create sort of compression around the tendon. 
But when we talk about compression of the ten, uh, the tendon or those sort of high loads across the tendon, we don't say things like, and this is going to damage the tendon. We say things like compression is normal. The tendons are exposed to compression all the time. That's completely normal. It's just that you know, if you go through a period of time where you expose that tendon to an excessive amount of compression, like more compression than, than normal, and usually that it takes quite a while for the tendon to finally complain about it. Think of that pain coming from your tendon as or associated with that tendon to be your brain saying, hey, maybe you shouldn't do so much of that. And then I get them to think about a 24-hour period. So I say it's cumulative. So the more of these positions or these activities you do within a 24-hour period, the grumpier you're going to make that tendon. So how about we um, try to reduce the amount of time you spend in these particular positions or doing these activities that are going to make the tendon grumpy. And we reassure people that if you find yourself in these positions here and there, don't worry, it's not like you're going to damage your tendon by crossing your legs once or hanging on your hips once, but it's about how much of that you do. So you touched briefly on cues that you look for during gait, and I just wondered if you could go just and do a little bit of some of your favorite cues that you find to be most helpful in your practice. There's a couple of things to consider. One is your gait parameters like your stride length, your stride width, uh, which all sort of impact on loading up at that tendon, um, particularly at that heel strike and into uh, your loading phase there. I look at how long their strides are and often there'll be this overstriding sort of technique that they might be sort of power walking and really striding out, a low knee lift, hitting the ground hard with their heel. Listening is really important to that heel strike and it's something that I get my patients to do as well so if they're hitting the ground really hard and you can hear them bang bang banging as they hit the ground and we don't want to confuse things by giving people multiple cues try different cues see what works for people often you know walking more softly helps because they immediately reduce their stride length stride width is the other thing that we look at for general sort of gait parameters so if you're sort of walking with one foot in front of the other you know and we've already educated them about what sort of positions irritate the tendons and again you don't need to bring that up unless it's specific to that person so they're the general sort of parameters and and then we look more specifically about femoropelvic control in that frontal plane I think uh, physical therapists are are pretty good at looking for lateral pelvic tilt in the frontal plane uh, through gait, but we need to also make sure we're looking for lateral pelvic shift or lateral trunk shift. So lateral pelvic shift will also put them in a position of adduction. So you can have people that might stand on one leg or squat or walk with a fairly level pelvis, but you look at the line of their femur and it looks on a real angle. And that's because they've actually shifted their pelvis laterally. So that's just as problematic as a lateral pelvic tilt. It should be easy to identify really. So if you're getting a tiny shift or a tiny tilt and you're going, "Mm, I'm not sure then maybe that's not the biggest thing. If we were to boil down all of your wonderful and extensive expertise to just mere bullet points, here's what I came up with. First, we need to diagnose correctly. It has to be pain on palpation. Fadir is very helpful. And the sustained single leg stance, also very helpful if you look for pain on both of those things in the right spot. Education is incredibly important, making sure that the patient is on the same page. They know why we're loading tendon, what that's going to feel like, what to expect, and that even if the pain doesn't respond right away, 
we still have a plan going forward for what to do and that they are in control of their pain and they're in control of what they're doing throughout the day to influence that. Their exercise progression, we start isometric to making sure that the activation is appropriate to relieve the pain. We can then go into double leg into single leg things to make it more difficult and making sure that the coordination and control uh, is appropriate, especially at the lumbopelvic region, going into a tendon progressive load, making sure that we are getting enough load on that tendon progressively. Any gait abnormalities that you may find should be obvious to correct. You can try out some different cues, but then stick with one cue. And we're avoiding any compression activities. So there's a lot of activity modification, how we're sitting, standing, moving, making it functional for the patient. All of those things is going to best help that patient get better. I think that pretty much wraps it up. Nice job, Chelsea. Um, Dr. Grimaldi, for those who are interested in continuing the discussion, where can they find you on social media? I'm probably most active on Twitter. So it's just at Alison Grimaldi. Um, I do have a Facebook page and I'm trying to be better at putting things on my Facebook as well. <laughs> and it's just Alison Grimaldi as, as well. And I do post things in LinkedIn. So that's three different ways that people can connect with you. Dr. Grimaldi also has a website that we highly recommend that you check out. She has free resources as well as full online courses, eBooks, and an upcoming video library that are all focused on different pathologies and evidence-based treatment for the hip and pelvis. As we mentioned before, she's a founding member of hippainhelp.com. And while it's a global directory of providers that are passionate about high-quality hip-related care, there is currently a large number of patients from the United States who do not have providers within reach. So if you're interested in becoming part of this directory, please make sure you find your way to hippainhelp.com. Allison, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. I know I certainly learned a lot, and uh, we look forward to seeing you in the future. No problem. It's been uh, yeah, really great. And thank you for listening to JOSBT. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSBT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSBT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favorite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time.